Hello, I'm Matt Eastland. And I'm Lakshmi Baladasan. And welcome to the Food Fight Podcast, the show from EIT Food, looking at how we can improve food together. EIT Food is Europe's leading food innovation initiative, working to make the food system more sustainable, healthy and trusted. And over the course of this series, we're going to be inviting people from all areas of the food industry to talk to us about how we can tackle the major challenges facing our food system. And whether that's looking at issues like tackling obesity, reducing food waste, or even exploring whether we'll all be eating lab-grown meat in the future, nothing's off the table. Basically, what we're talking about here is improving food for our benefit and for that of the planet. So for our very first podcast, we're going to be asking the big question, can we really feed 10 billion people by 2050? Matt, what do we mean by this question? Well, we all know that the world population is growing. So according to United Nations research, the world population is projected to increase by about a third by 2050. That's 10 billion people. And to feed this population, it's estimated that we're going to require a 60 to 70% increase in global food production compared to what we have today, which is a massive number and poses a load of challenges. Can we actually feed everyone? Break it down. Well, firstly, there's a question of are we physically capable of producing that much more food? Do we have that capability? Secondly, how can we ensure that we can produce a high enough quality of food to properly sustain us? And all of this is going to have an inevitable negative effect on the planet, right? Yeah, there's a long list of incredibly scary stats here. So food production is responsible for up to 30% of global greenhouse gas emissions, 70% of fresh water withdrawals, and the food system industrial activities require about 25-26% of the EU's energy consumption. Yet despite the massive drain on resources and the planet, we then waste about a third of all our food globally, which is a massive shame. And I could go on and on. So the question really is, can we really feed 10 billion people by 2050? Hmm. Wow, okay. So it sounds like we've got lots of complex issues to solve. And and we know there's some great initiatives taking place globally. And in the studio with us today, we've got two experts. So first of all, we're joined by Professor Karina Hawkes, who's the director of the Centre of Food Policy at City University London. Karina's mission is to help the world eat better through better diets that are good for the planet too. Thank you for inviting me. And our second guest is Stefan Durand, who's the director of Agri-Food Quest at Queen's University Belfast, a leading innovation centre in Northern Ireland, focusing on tech and innovation in the agri-food sector. Queen's is also EIT Foods partner. Great to have you here, Stefan. So by way of introduction, can you give us a quick overview of what you do? Yes, uh, glad to be here and uh, thank you for the invite. Uh, so Agri-Food Quest is a competence centre funded by Invest Northern Ireland for the local industry and its local problems really to be solved between academia and the industry. But those local issues, when you look at it in detail, they actually are perfect pilots for the global issues as well. I'm also working within the Institute of Global Food Security, which is tackling the big issue of the food sector, in particular in relation to food integrity, but also in relation to food and health and finally sustainability. So looking at this question, we also need to think about changing habits and attitudes. So Krina, this is really where you come in. Can you give us a brief insight into your work? 
Sure, well, I'm a director of the Centre for Food Policy at City University of London, and as a centre, we are concerned with educating the next generation around uh, food policy and food systems issues, and we have a master's programme. And we also can gather evidence and conduct scholarship into how policy, how food policy can effectively address the big challenges of the global food system. My own work is around uh, the healthy eating space. In fact, to me, that's not so much about habits and attitudes, even though that's very, very important, but it's actually about driving systems change and understanding how you can change the food system in order you can change what people eat. And I'm particularly concerned with how we design and deliver policies that are actually working for people, particularly those who experience disadvantage. That's an interesting term that you brought up, food system. So I guess before we really unpick this large question about feeding all of this all these people on the planet. Can you explain a little bit about what you mean by food system and why it's struggling to cope? Sure. So the food system is essentially everything and everybody involved in bringing food onto people's tables and the relationships that those processes have with our economic, political, environmental and social realms. So it could be kind of everything because so much in the world is involved in, in, in somehow getting food onto people's tables. And the reason it's so important is that the policies and incentives of that system impact what we eat, they impact the environment, they have political implications, food is often used as a weapon of war, for example, Uh, food is a massive economic sector. So if we don't tackle the problems of this big food system, then we're not tackling the major challenges of the world today. And and that's something, I mean, you're talking about some big stuff there. It sounds scary. Are you concerned and scared about this big challenge that we all have to tackle? Well, I mean, I've been doing this work for about 20 years now, and and I think at first I used to find it really scary because it is really scary. (laughs) But you have to get up in the morning and just get on with your work, really. So, so, I mean, my philosophy is just get up and get on with it. And it's so big, the challenge is so big that if you actually thought about it, deeply every day you'd be so scared you wouldn't do anything yeah. uh, you know we, we it is big but you have to just get up and get on and and we're very lucky that around the world today there is more and more and more engagement from academics from civil society from industry from across the board on trying to tackle the problems of the global food system and Stefan you know this is huge right I and mean, is this something that concerning you in what you do yeah, again, same as Corinna, it's, the issue is not really concerning, it's more about really how do we do something about such a big question and segment it into different areas that eventually we can really solve. Uh, so policy is one part of it. Mm-hmm. I believe very much in the grassroots, actually, and, and you can see a massive change in grassroots in terms of what they can do. I mean, just look at this young girl from Sweden, uh, Greta mm. Thunberg is really by just purely saying what she thinks, suddenly it's attracting millions of young people who are saying, hold on here, she's got a point. So it's those kind of grassroots that I see really are going to make an enormous change into the way that we manage food across the world. Completely agree. And I think one of the things we were thinking about when we looking at this from EIT Food Perspective is we're talking about two billion extra people, but they're not going to be in the Western world. The population is going to be growing around the Indian Ocean. And I mean, for me, culturally growing up, eating a vegan and vegetarian diet was part of my culture. It was only when I moved to the Western world, I had McDonald's shoved into me. So like, how do we 
us in the West focusing on feeding 10 billion people? How do we ensure that we take into account where the population is going to be and how do we work with the existing diets of where the population is going to grow? Well, I think there's a harsh reality that we consume too much. Not necessarily the, the poorest aspects of society in, in Western countries at all, but we, we consume too much meat, we consume too many calories, and that goes across the board. We consume too much energy. There is a situation of overconsumption, which is directly incentivized by our economic model. And we have to face a harsh reality that we're going to have to reduce some of that consumption to spread consumption more evenly, because there are other parts of the world and other populations who need to, to actually have more. So it's a difficult challenge, especially when we're brought up in an environment that implies that, you know, more is more and more is good and you can have this, but mm. there are costs to it. And technology has some solutions, but unfortunately we are going to have to think about how we're going to reduce our consumption. And, and Stefan, do you agree with that? I mean, if we do all reduce our consumption, and maybe we have to, is that something which is going to impact the farming industry? I mean, uh, now you introduce uh, an enormous question. So I'm going <laughs> to another enormous uh, question. An enormous question, absolutely. And and the answer is that the farmers are the most resilient people in the world. Yes, and they've been resilient already for a long, long time. And they have to be resilient based on the weather, based on many different aspects of it. But I'm going to take a step back a bit, really, in this aspect. I was privileged uh, two days ago. I was in Belfast where my home is, and it was a conference with Jonathan Poet, CBE, and is probably one of the best-known environmentalists who has been banging at the drum for the last 50 years in the UK. And I go back really to this aspect of equity because that's what he puts at the centre of it. And unless we can really solve out this equity aspect of it, we will never be able to feed the 10 billion, let alone currently the 7.5 billion. But what he said, really, I thought it struck a chord for me. Is that something, the vision should be, how do you develop a sustainable creation of wealth for the longer term? And I thought that was such a fantastic phrase to think about. You know, we're all in it together. But if we could really create wealth in a sustainable matter across the entire society, then we'll solve the problem. And currently, really, the reality, we cannot feed seven and a half, let alone ten. Mm. So the issue really of are the farmers going to struggle or not? No, they need to adapt and they are the best to adapt. And policy becomes such an important aspect of it. So last 30 years, when you talk to uh, farmers who have gone through education, so agriculture education in the UK, they've been taught to produce one thing brilliantly. Mm -hmm. That's what they've been taught. So you produce beef and you have to produce to be the best beef farmer or you produce milk or you produce cereals and you have to be the best at it. And the best in the Western world means yield. Mm. And the consequence of it is therefore the reliance on things that are really destroying the very things that they have, they own, which is the soil, has been massively an implications for the longer term in terms of how we can really be self-sufficient and across the world. And I think that's one of the fundamental issues is we need to change the way. So I was reading a fantastic report from Tim Lang, actually, who is part of it and is also into the Eat Lancet report from the ISA, uh, the Royal Society of Arts and uh, Commerce in particular. But this report really is exactly talking about how do you diversify 
-hmm. how do you create equity? With quite a lot of very simple examples about how to make this happen. And interestingly, when you talk to the farmers, they're ready for it. They know that they need to change. The question is how. Okay, so that that's also another huge question. But is is it just farming? I mean, you mentioned the Eat Lancet report, and Corinna, I know this is something that you've been involved in. I mean, a what was the Eat Lancet report, and what was it saying? It was talking about something about diet. So it'd be great if you can kind of unpack that for people listening. Sure. So the Eat Lancet Commission on Healthy Diets and Sustainable Food Systems was a report put together by thirty-seven scientists around the world. I was on the commission. And it was designed to identify what a healthy diet was in the first instance and how, and if that diet could be actually produced sustainably with the measure being greenhouse gas emissions. So it produced a diet, the Eat Lancet diet as it's now being called, which sets out what we should be eating as a planet in order to promote our health as well as in order to protect the planet and remain within planetary boundaries. In fact, it's actually rather difficult uh, for the global population to eat healthily and still remain within planetary boundaries. Mm. There was a lot of emphasis uh, when it came out on the fact that we need to reduce our, our meat intake in particular in order to try and stay within planetary boundaries. But doesn't that mean that there's going to have to be like a massive behaviour shift in the way that people eat? And if that's the case, how do we do that? Yeah, I mean, people are going to have to consume less meat. But that is, again, that's largely the wealthier populations in the wealthier countries. There are actually some populations who who would benefit, or at least their young children would benefit, from eating a bit more meat. And that's why we're talking very, very, very small amounts of meat. And some people are vegetarians and there are moral objections to eating meat, but uh, small amounts of meat can be very nutritious, particularly for young children who are at risk of malnutrition. So really mainly it's about high meat eaters reducing, but it's also about the junk food epidemic. So you mentioned McDonald's earlier, the growth in processed foods, uh, industrially manufactured foods, which draw on the food which is produced. So much of what is produced are cereals or oil seeds, which are then ground up and processed in some way, as sugar is another one, and used in these processed foods. And, and so diets have gone through this radical shift from being more based on the basic food groups to including these, these processed foods. So that, combined with meat, combined with a much higher intake of vegetable oils, which are very calorific, is leading to a world which is much more affected by overweight and obesity and diet-related chronic diseases than ever before. So we have this lethal combination of undernutrition, which includes underweight, what's called stunting when kids don't grow properly, micronutrient deficiencies, combined with overweight and obesity and diet-related non-communicable diseases. So it's a tricky one, and, the, and my work is all focused about how you change that. Mm. And you need change. I mean, I could talk about it for a long time, so I'll just give uh, three um, basic points that you need change at multiple levels. So that's about saying... If you've got the Lancet diet or any kind of food-based dietary guideline, to be honest, they're not perfect, but they broadly indicate what a healthy diet is. We need agricultural producers to produce that diet. But then we also need the um, food distributors to make sure that can be distributed and not wasted because there's a huge problem with food waste. And there tends to be disproportionately large waste among fruits and vegetables and, and legumes as well for perishability and storage issues. Then we need to make sure that that diet doesn't disappear into the highly processed industrially manufactured food when it's processed and it remains healthy. So if you're producing tomatoes, they stay as tomatoes, not going to ketchup, that kind of thing. Mm. And then we need to make sure that that 
that diet is retailed through the system. So we need to completely realign our food system from producing more food through the higher yield to producing the right kind of food. And that's throughout the system. It's not just about agriculture, but it's all the way through the system. So that's the first piece. And then the second piece is around understanding people's lived experiences that influence it, lived realities that influence the foods that they eat. So if you're living in a very disadvantaged situation, trying to work two jobs and feed your kids and have very little money, there's a reason why you would buy certain foods which are neither good for your health nor for the planet. And the work that I do as Vice Chair of the Mayor of London's um, Child Obesity Task Force, we're very much looking at that and trying to understand the reality of people's lives. And then these are the two areas of evidence, if you like, that we need. And then the final piece is to um, innovate action at all levels. So that's at the policy level, it's at the grassroots level, it's at the industry level, it's at the level of social, technological and policy innovation. So there's a tremendous amount of possible tools out there. There's no shortage of approaches, of ideas of how to make change. It's a question of actually getting them implemented. Mm. And as soon as you do that, you face barriers. You face economic barriers, you face pushback. There's all kinds of reasons why you can't take these actions. So then it becomes a political question. And how do we address the politics and the economics, political and economic question, which and break down those barriers and redesign the economy? I, I'm a great believer that the big, the big change has to be redesigning the economy in order that we can actually get these actions implemented. Currently, are there any cultures globally that have got it right? Sure, yeah. I mean, I get that asked that question a lot because it's a really good question. <laughs> the answer is is that nowhere, no country has got it right, but there are were, there were some actions that some countries are taking which appear to be working, and there are some localities within countries where things appear to be working. So that's kind of a mixture of where you find communities that haven't really changed that much. They're, they're still living quite traditional lifestyles, or I didn't like the word traditional, but lifestyles which are not very modern in the sense of, you know, not being invaded by lots of junk food and, and not being part of a very mainstream economic system. And then there were particular initiatives and actions which appear to be working. And then there were some cultures which appear to be more resilient to change. So people often cite Japan and South Korea, for example, as being countries that still have good aspects to their diet, but those countries are changing rapidly too. So there's nowhere really that has has got it all right. But um, there are examples of where policies are being pushed forward in a positive way. So if I can give the example of Chile, recently the country has taken a very strong stand against obesity. They have very, very high rates of obesity in Chile and very low, very minimal rates of undernutrition. So there's a lot of work there around labelling and marketing and trying to give information to consumers and stop those kind of junk foods from being so attractive to consumers. But they've got a massive problem. So you can't say, oh, they've got it all right. One of the reasons they're taking so much action is because they've got such a big problem in the first place, one of the largest problems of obesity in the world. So I, the way that I prefer to see it is who's taking the most innovative action and who's taking the strongest action that we can use to inspire and say it's possible, change can happen. And on that point, so you're talking about innovation and the people driving this. Stefan, I mean, have you sort of globally, have you seen any really interesting innovations in this space that are going to help feed 10 billion people by 2050? Hundreds of things that is going on and feeding 10 billion 
has got so many different aspects to it because you need to think about regeneration of soil. You need to think about really resilience of climate change. You need to think about one of the biggest problems that is going to hit the world really and is already hitting the world, which is water deficiency. And it's probably the one that is going to come first in many ways. And as soon as you have water deficiencies, is you need to adapt your agriculture and the way that you produce food to the fact that you should produce less water. So an example, simple example, is California is deficient in water for many, many years. Is Water needs to be imported into California <laughs> in order to produce a lot of the food that then goes all around the world. So one example, in a modern world, we love now really moving away from dairy products and into other kind of products, almond milk. So 90% of all the almond is coming from California. In order to produce one almond, it needs five liters of water. Oh, wow. I'm guilty of this. <laughs> okay, so, uh, um, and that's a consequence of a global supply chain and global supply system, as we talked about at the beginning. So, but there are many solutions, and those solutions, interestingly enough, for me, the most... Um, it's very difficult for the large organizations to, to innovate uh, and it's because of layers and everything is around risk management. So you find layers upon layers of decision, which means that eventually it's not that they're not innovative, it's just that there are enough blockage not to really implement those innovation in many ways. So in terms of innovation, what I find is that the most innovative tends to be in relation to the startup and the young companies who don't have those barriers and are really developing a lot of things. So again, going back to grassroots and people that suddenly where their land is a desert and how they're going to really change from a desert back to really a productive land. And there are some fantastic results really in many parts of the world, in China in particular, in Africa, in Ethiopia, where really those grassroots solutions have come up without almost the help of anyone. So it's mm. possible and, and where it could be to turbocharge is through policy. So the policy is not there really to solve out the problem. It's there to turbocharge something that really the people are ready to do and is just almost a helping hand. The social and what's going on in relation to food system and that Corinne has, has detailed in, in many instances. It's a key issue really is that we need to change in our Western world. And how do we really change in terms of innovative approach to those changes is something that will come from many different players. But I think I, I, need, I like to remind people that in our Western world in particular, Convenience is not a right. Mm -hmm. Convenience has never been a right. But the problem is everything that has been driving really innovation into the food systems has been about convenience more than anything else. And convenience has created many other issues. When I arrived in the UK 25 years ago, it was no salads or vegetables in plastic. <laughs> But it's convenient. Actually, interestingly enough, more for the retailers in this point of view and so for the supply chain, for the supplier actors than anybody else. And now it's almost impossible to find a vegetable that is not really surrounded by plastic. Very, very difficult. Actually, it becomes a, a very difficult thing. So in terms of the innovation is out there, it's happening. It's happening at grassroots level. It's growing fast. It's growing. But it's how do you have the mass change 
in those areas is where we need to turbocharge really to make it even more easy for people. And I'm not going to talk convenience, but easy for people to see that there is an alternative. And this alternative actually is quite good. So education for me is one of the key things. At Queen's University, we do a lot of work. Actually, interestingly enough, in within the AgriFood Quest, is we've got one project, for instance, where we've got 15 companies who are involved with the local s- schools really to drive the change in thinking about food. And unless we start at this age of two, three, four, five, I think we are going to struggle really to make radical changes fast enough. Mm-hmm. Because those young people are the very ones who are going to be able to really change for the longer term, really. And education, when you look at the the curriculum, there's nothing about really how food is being produced, how food really interacts with the body, how food is related to health, all those aspects of it. And policy, to start with policy, it would be very simple because governments and UK governments spend millions, if not billions, to feed a lot of people on a daily basis. From uh, all the civil servants, to the schools, to the hospitals, to the... But they relinquish their responsibility on the longer term to private organizations who are driven by just one thing, which is profit. And nothing wrong with this, but the consequence is that suddenly you also relinquish the opportunity to actually drive change easily through really the provision of food in those uh, organisations. So you talk, um, Stefan, about responsibility there. I mean, it seems like there's a lot put on the government there, but is it just the government? I mean, is it only going to be through policy change that we can fix this problem? Or is it all of us? Is it the food industry? Is it us as consumers? I mean, Corinna, what do you think? Well, responsibility needs to be taken by everybody. We're all responsible. So quite often that the wars that we get into and the debates that we get into about, you know, who is primarily responsible, it's very hard to answer that question because responsibility is needed at all levels. But the key thing for me is if we say, well, they are responsible, then that is just uh, the way of not affecting change. It's saying, well, until they do something, whoever they is, then I don't need to do anything. And in fact, as individuals, we need to be taking responsibility where it is possible. Um, But part of that responsibility is actually calling out when others need to take responsibility. It's not just about, oh, you know, I'm going to have change my diet or or consume a bit less. That's important. But it's also actually about recognising that others do have responsibility because the last thing that we want is the whole thing to be placed on so-called consumers to take all the responsibility because um, it's impossible for consumers just to change what they are doing. One, if they're subject to disadvantage, as I mentioned earlier. But second, if they're not being helped along the way through policy and, um, and, and innovation. So I think it's the simple answer is everybody needs to take responsibility. And do you think businesses have a role in that as well? Are they going to be sort of pushing this or is actually there going to be a bit of a disconnect for them where actually potentially we're asking businesses to be more sustainable, to be more responsible, maybe even encouraging people to eat less food. Is that going to work? Um, yes, and it's the one area they don't like to go. They're happy to change the food that they're providing and to tweak it a bit, but to actually say we need you to sell less, whether you're, you know, if you're a big supermarket and we're saying as a supermarket, we want you to sell less food to people, it doesn't go down very well. No. Yeah, we need businesses to stop selling 
unhealthy food to children or marketing that, that those kinds of foods to their children and their parents. We need businesses, um, small businesses, and um, we're talking globally here, and small entrepreneurs, real businesses, and street vendors and the businesses that serve people who live on very, very low incomes in situations of disadvantage just to be providing healthy food. But you're not going to get any of this without a policy framework that incentivizes the production and sale of healthy and sustainable food and disincentivizes the sale of um, large quantities of meat and junk food. So that's what I mean by you need responsibility at all levels so everybody has a responsibility everyone needs to act but it needs to act in synergy and for that what you need is political leadership and that's what we don't have enough of yet you need to have political leadership at the highest levels who say you know what this is serious and I know that we can solve this problem and I'm going to make that happen we have not seen our political leaders do that yet. We have some great examples in this country, in Europe and around the world of action, but we don't have that true political leadership that says this is a big problem and there's some big solutions and there's some solutions across the board and I'm going to work single-mindedly to make this happen. If that happened, we could solve this problem and we don't have that political leadership at this point in time. Mm. And I know this is something that you feel strongly about too, Stefan, so what's your take on this? who's responsible and the role of government in this? I mean, I totally agree with Corinna. It's everyone within really is, uh, who are involved in food, which is basically every one of us, because we eat every day, or hopefully, and uh, they are the producers and uh, supply chain players and the retailers and the farmers. But, yes, the consumer will need to change, and the change, you need a change in their own framework in order for them to start doing something different. And at the moment, because the political agenda has been moved away, if it was never there, ever there is very little mentioned. I mean, Boris Johnson comes in and really almost nothing to date has been mentioned around really this aspect of climate change, around really the influence of climate change on food production, about how we're going to produce more with less, how we're going to really make it net zero carbon emissions, how all those aspects of it have not been discussed. But it's when you look at the report, in particular IPCC, I mean, they, they're quite conservative in their approach to science. So, and they are saying now it's 12 years. It's 12 years to change. And unless we change, and, and why climate change is the center of it is because if suddenly you've got really high period of really intense heat and high period of intense water, then the system is not really resilient enough to produce really doing those conditions. All this, therefore, has implication of policy right now. But I believe that changes will happen from the younger generation, will happen from, and I mentioned about the two billion. They are the ones who are going to make the change. So why don't we make it easy for government then? You know, we've got some really good minds in the studio with us. You know, why don't we think about a utopian food industry? So if you could kind of go back and redesign the way that we produce and consume food... What would you do differently? You know, can we crack this for the government right now? The easy one is, first of all, the current policy across the world has been driven by one policy, really. And the policy has been cheap food and cheap food for the last probably 50, 60 years. Because it gets really the people of the back 
of the politicians. So it's easy in many ways, because guess what? If suddenly there is not enough food in the plate, then that's the first thing that will happen. It'll be revolutions. So the cheap food has been really a center of policies in US, policy in Europe, policy in most part of the world, really. And, uh, and now the perversion of it is that there's too much hmm. being consumed because it's so cheap. And the one who don't have the food will actually survive better from uh, purely buying enough food for their children if they buy cheap food, which is also full of calories and very little in nutrition. So all these policies around cheap food needs to change, but that's where really policy is so important, is you need, therefore, to subsidize in the right areas. Subsidies are happening. They're happening for the wrong reason and with the wrong people. So a good example for me is around subsidy, a simple one, really, that could happen. Subsidy around carbon. The current subsidy around carbon in the world is $300 billion a year. Wow. Okay. Versus green energy, probably less than 100, about 50 to 60 billion. <laughs> it will take a shift, a very small shift, actually, not 100%, but a shift of 30, 40% of this money that currently you give to the carbon rich industry into the green energy is suddenly the opportunity to produce things that are more sustainable in the longer term. It's very easy to do. But governments are not prepared to do that because then you've got a lot of lobbying mm. going on. And interestingly, the agriculture is not ready for that because what it means suddenly is they fertilizer become too expensive and therefore they cannot produce enough and therefore they cannot get enough money for the food that they produce. And so the whole system is interconnected. So how do we get all this in balance at the right time is really a, a very complex world issues mm. that cannot be solved just purely by the UK. In the UK, we produce less food than we consume. So therefore, we import a lot of the food that we need. Yeah. So it's really important how we, we think about how all those key players that can make a difference really receive almost a nudge. And they will not get a nudge unless really the grassroots is making as a voice heard. And I think it's just the beginning of it. It's happening. But as Corinne is saying, not fast enough. So same thing to you, Corinne. If we can hit Control-Alt-Delete, start all over again, how would you create the food system? Well, I'd start by having a public policy that supported diversity at point of production. So that would be a transformative policy. As um, Stefan has said, uh, the focus has been for the last decades, decades and decades, on productivity as the goal of food mm. policy. And that was laudable. It was because they wanted to feed the world. It's, mm. You know, you can't say, oh, those stupid idiots. Actually, it was a very sensible thing to want, which is to produce more food to feed the growing population. But it led to this specialisation and focus on productivity and yield. So the first thing I would do is to completely change policies so that it was incentivizing farmers to produce on-farm diversity, landscape diversity and diversity within countries. That is a completely different system to what we have now and I think would be it would have effects that I can't even predict. But that's what I mean by transformative policy. It's a if you take a systems approach, I think we need to take a systems approach to these issues. It's like what are these big policies which are transformative and policies that support diversity of point of production is one of them. The second one is I would change the nature of competition law to break up 
the concentrated um, large industries and completely scatter them and break them up, even though quite a few of them are doing really some quite good things now. You know, I can't deny that and I'm not suggesting they should stop doing that and there's perfectly decent people, very good people in some of those companies doing good things. But if we're talking big vision, let's break them up and let's start to think about how we organise our businesses, how we stimulate innovation and entrepreneurship in the private sector in order to produce healthy and, and, and food from sustainable food systems. For that, we need to start again. You asked about starting yeah. again. And then the third thing that I would do is to introduce education, skills and literacy from practically the point that you are born, which means that breastfeeding is really important. And then as soon as possible to be surrounding kids in a very, very comprehensive way with every message, every incentive, every encounter that they have with the world is about saying health and sustainability and it's enjoyable and it's fun and it's going to lead to a better life for you. So that's a whole kind of education skills literacy piece which would have to be hugely comprehensive. But to get to those first three very radical, very, very radically different things, we need to start to educate the elite. So at this point in time, I mentioned political leadership is vital. We need to have leadership at the levels of politics, at the level of the economy, at levels of business, at the level of education, at all levels, who understand that these issues are connected and that we need radical change, but we can move towards radical change. And often in the people are encounter fantastic people out there, but they just don't quite get it. And that's what's so important about our master's programme. It's why we're developing professional development programmes for education as well at my uh, Centre for Food Policy. Um, but it needs to go way beyond that. So when we're talking about education, let's remember we're also talking about the education of the elite. So your point about education is really uh, interesting one. Because a lot of the questions we get from our Twitter audience is you can educate the public about healthy behaviors, but then how do you link healthy food and tasty food? How do you ensure that consumers are going for both? I mean, it's absolutely vital. And there's no reason that healthy food it cannot be delicious. Unfortunately, though, um, because kids are targeted with these very, very sweet foods from a very young age, they get very accustomed to it. And that's what they associate with being delicious. I mean, it is delicious, extremely likeable, extremely easy to like, and the food industry engineer it in that way. There's a brilliant scheme here in the UK, which is from a Finnish scheme called Saper. Uh, it's called Taste Ed here in the UK, run by B. Wilson and others, which is about exposing children to fruits and vegetables and many of them have never been exposed to them before and they're picking them up, they're thinking about the texture and they're stroking them and kind of getting used to them. It's about educating or exposing, and the word educating isn't quite right, it's about exposing, about learning, about um, healthy food that is also delicious. And if it was like everyone needs to brush their teeth, you know, we teach that from quite a young age. If we just said, OK, one of our essential aspects of education is to expose kids to healthy and delicious foods, that would completely transform things. But as part of that, you need to get rid of the junk food. Uh, you know, you need to cut it out and you need to protect children from it so it doesn't get in the way. I consider it's a kind of a big brother that industry is targeting young children with this junk food and it's intruding and getting in the way of healthy learning, which is affecting their long-term health and the health of the planet. And I guess, you know, I think in terms to wrap up on a positive note, Karina, what are you most hopeful about? What are, are you seeing some changes? Are you feeling like, yes, there is hope? We are going to be able to feed 10 billion people by 2050 in a sustainable and healthy way? 
We will if we get the political will and the economic changes that I need to make that happen and, and all the, the other changes. So, yes, it's possible. We all need to be driven by the idea that something is possible. Like Stefan, I see a lot of innovation going on, a lot of action going on around, around the world in policy and in production practices, in civil society, in certain parts of the business world. And I think what I'm most excited about is really developing a new vision, if you like. I think that we are moving towards a greater understanding of a vision we need to get to. So that, to me, is a plate, a plate of healthy food produced from a sustainable and economically viable food system. So what I'm excited about is communicating that vision and unleashing innovation of, of different actors across the system to say, what can I do to achieve that plate? And there's many, many actions that are going on around the world that can help do that from the very, very smallest level to the large level. And I'm not going to pick out anyone in particular, but I think I'm excited about that action and I'm excited about championing it which is something I try and do. I'm excited about connecting it, which is, again, something that I try and do. And I suppose my vision is of when there's a real global movement saying this is our vision and we're just going to get up in the morning and we're just going to do what we can. Um, we're going to share lessons, we're going to feed off each other and we're going to push forward change as fast as we can. I love it. Join the food fight. And Stefan, are you hopeful? Are you excited about the future or are you a bit more pessimistic? My glass is always half full, <laughs> never half empty. Today, we can feed 10 billion easily, except that at the moment, we don't know how, but we could. So that's the important part. I really almost going to jump on what Corinna has said just early on, because that's the most exciting part for me is that the young people. And the young people are already so connected so interconnected, so communicative with each other. It's a community already of young people. Mm. And it's happening at a pace that really neither politicians nor civil societies really comprehend. But it's happening. And I say that at grassroots levels. And almost they are saying, you know what, forget about politics because we are going to make it happen. And I'm very hopeful that they are the ones who are going to make the changes and they're making the changes as we speak now. We can accelerate it with the goodwill of politicians and civil society and companies and everyone around it, but they are going to make the changes. It just need a nudge. And the nudge will be, actually, you only don't need 100% of the population to agree. It just takes 15%. Many studies have showed, you know what, once you, your tipping point will be at 15%. And I think we are getting close to that. We are getting close to that in terms of awareness. We are getting close to that in terms of knowing that we need to do something different. And, and it's not only just the consumer, it's not only the people, it's actually also companies, it's farmers, it's politicians, some politicians who are not really busy bickering at each other. But it's happening. It's just... What is the tipping point? And the tipping point, I think, is going to be closer than, than we think. And the tipping point is about where suddenly all on here. I mean, the fact that, for instance, politicians have accused and fought directly with this poor girl, 15 years old, Greta Thunberg, yes, on social media, shows that she's got a point that is suddenly becoming so important they have to fight it back in a wrong way, as they do, but actually it's already happening. Mm. 
and I'm very confident that the tipping point is sooner than we can ever imagine. And if I could just add to this, we've been talking about these various aspects of food from climate change to healthy diets and there are different communities working on different aspects of food. So climate change is, is more than just about food, of course, but you've got a whole load of people working on climate change and food. You've got a whole load of people working on food waste, a whole load of people working on business startups, a whole load of people working on undernutrition, a whole load of people working around overweight and obesity. So there were lots of different communities who were innovating and pushing forward change in these different aspects of food. If they could work together and connect together we would achieve so much more, which is why it's one of my ambitions to work to try and, and do that and to help uh, move towards that. And so I think that everyone's just so busy trying to get their things done. You need to stand up and say, actually, there are others out here that we can connect with to make more effective change. That's amazing because, I mean, that's actually exactly what EIT Food Community is really trying to do, like connecting all the actors across the food value chain to break down and solve all of these problems. So what a lovely way to finish off. So thank you very much for that, Corinna. And you know, Corinna and Stefan, you know, been an absolute pleasure. Really, really fascinating talking to you both. So thank you for that. I mean, if people want to know a little bit more about who you are and what you do, where can they go? From my point of view, either on AgriFoodQuest website, uh, agrifoodquest.com, or in a wider sense uh, within the Queen's University website in uh, as the Institute of Global Food Security, or igfs.co.uk. Great. Corinna? Sure, we'll come to the Centre for Food Policy website, or just put me into Google, or come to one of the many talks that I give, um, or come and study our master's programme. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Food Fight podcast. Please remember to hit subscribe as we've got some great episodes coming up covering things like food waste and food and packaging and whether we can trust our food. We, we cover it all. If you want to find out more about EIT Food and join the conversation, please check out eitfood.eu or follow us on Twitter at EIT Food. Until next time, from me, Matt Eastland. And Lakshmi Balvasan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.